Well, I'm really excited about our guest speaker. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, um, but his name is Dr. Brandon O'Brien. And uh, what's cool about Dr. Brandon, he comes to speak at least once a semester. And what's really cool, he's a mentor and friend in my life, but he's actually my life group leader. And so I know we tell you to get in a life group all the time. I'm in a life group, and he and his wife are my life group leaders. So gotcha, Jesus juke. I'm not just saying this. I'm not just selling it, guys. I need y'all in a group. It's awesome. So if you guys will do me a favor, be engaged, take notes, have fun. But I promise we talked about what he might want to speak in January. And it's been on my heart big for you guys. I know we're all going to learn together. So can y'all give a loud and proud elevation welcome to Dr. Brett O'Brien. Come on, get loud, nation. Yeah, come on. Have fun. Hey, everybody. Is this on? Is this on? Okay, thanks. I like getting the applause at the beginning because then no matter how things go, at least there was a clap. I appreciate that. So it's good to be with you guys. Um, my name is Brandon O'Brien. I'm the director of OBU at New Life Church, which is our college uh, degree program here. I see a couple of our students back here. We had a couple on the stage. It's really a, a privilege. It's a blessing to worship, to be led in worship by our students and then to serve in ministry with them here. So um, I have two kids. One just turned four and uh, one will be two this summer. So uh, there's a lot of drama in our house. And um, my wife is amazing, um, and uh, together we lead a life group and uh, work with college students. We just, we love it, love our life here. Um, I also am a big fan of your pastor, Amir. Um, he's a good friend, and um, I have, I don't know that I know another pastor that is more sincere or devoted, and so I really appreciate you. So would you give your pastor a round of applause? He's a good guy. So uh, I do appreciate Amir. What I don't appreciate is when we talked about me speaking here in January, uh, Amir said, um, I think it'd be great if you could talk about guilt and shame. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, sure, I'll do that because everybody loves that topic. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, when you're sort of the melancholy pastor on staff that you get all the, you know, depressing topics. Um, but I've been thinking about it a lot. I think this is, no, it's true. I'm used to it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I've been around long enough to know that these things happen. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about, uh, I'm going to touch on guilt and shame tonight, but we're not going to talk about guilt and shame directly. What I, what I want to talk about tonight is that um, I don't want you to experience guilt and shame. Um, I joke about this because, it's, uh, because I have to, but my, my dad's side of the family, I'm an O'Brien, so we were Irish Catholic back a generation or so ago, and then I grew up Southern Baptist, and between Southern Baptist and Irish Catholic... Um, I got really good at feeling guilty about things. Um, we repress feel feelings and feel guilty about everything. That's kind of the family, uh, you know, inheritance. So um, I'm somebody who's very familiar with those feelings. Um, and I, felt, I feel like I grew up in a church that talked about sin a lot. And we talked about sin enough that I felt guilty a lot. But what we never talked about was how to not sin. We just talked about you shouldn't do it. And uh, I had my pastor, his favorite verse in all the Bible, and I don't even remember, I think it's in Jeremiah or something, is in, no matter what the passage was, no matter what the topic was, he could always work in the phrase, all of your good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. And I thought, well, that's what I need because I feel really bad about the bad things that I'm doing, and now I can't even feel good about the good things that I'm doing. So I, I, I felt like for a very long time that it was sort of inevitable that I was going to sin because I didn't know how to not do it. And I knew that I was supposed to feel guilty about it when I did. And so this is just sort of our lot in life, right? To continually make mistakes and feel bad about them. 
Um, and what I was never told that was that Scripture actually shows us a pattern, uh, a process of how sin works. Um, and that's what I want to talk about. So you might think, whew, we're off the hook. We're not talking about guilt and shame, but we are talking about sin. So that's sort of, you know, a lateral move uh, at best. But the good news is that when we think about sin as a process uh, or sin as a pattern, it means that we can stop the process, right? It means that sin is not inevitable. It means that, the, that we can be equipped with the Word of God and with the power of the Spirit to stop it before sin becomes mature. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So we're going to look at three passages in the Old Testament, one in Genesis, one in Joshua, and one in 2 Samuel. Uh, so if you have a Bible uh, made of paper, you could, you know, mark those places. Uh, if you don't, you'll just have to, you know, toggle real fast on your uh, electronic device. Uh, but the one I want to look at first is uh, Genesis chapter 3. And I want to talk about this pattern or process of sin. So Genesis chapter 3 we're in the Garden of Eden. The first two chapters of Genesis are good news. These are, uh, this is a story of God creating the cosmos and creating a human community to live in it. They have everything they could ever want, everything they could ever need. There's just one commandment, which is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Genesis chapter 3 picks up there. And we're going to look in verse, uh, start in verse 6. So the woman is near the tree, Eve is near the tree. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So here's the first text that I want us to look at. And I want us to look at three movements in this passage. The first is that uh, there's a pattern, three things, three verbs. The first thing Eve does is she saw the tree and she saw that it was good. The second thing she did is she desired it. She saw that it was desirable for food and to make her wise. And the third thing she did is she took the fruit and ate it. So these are three distinct stages. If she had seen the fruit and not desired it, then she would have just been passing by. If she saw the fruit and desired it but didn't take it, she wouldn't have broken God's commandment. It took the third stage in this process before she actually committed the sin. Are you with me so far? So she saw it, she desired it, and she took it. So there are three distinct stages in this process of sin, and sin doesn't occur until the third stage. Problem is, stages one and two lead pretty quickly to sin, right? So they're not unimportant, uh, but there is a process. So that's the pattern, that's the sin in Genesis chapter three. Uh, verses seven and eight give us the consequences. Uh, she took, she ate, she gave it to her husband, who was just standing there watching her talk to a snake, because he's an idiot. And uh, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the very first thing that happens after they take from the food is their immediate, inter uh, their immediate instinct after that is to hide themselves from each other. This I would categorize as shame, the feeling that they have in in front of or as opposed to each other. And then the second thing that they experience is guilt in verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So when Adam and Eve sin, the first thing that they do is they experience a rift between each other. They can't trust each other anymore. They feel like they can't share themselves with each other as completely as they did before. 
And the second thing they experience is distance from God. They feel like they have to hide from him. And for the rest of human history, including today, for the rest of the, the Bible, um, all of us feel like we have to put on an appearance, we have to put on a performance to uh, experience acceptance from others or to experience acceptance from God. Uh, and the, this is where these feelings of guilt and shame come from. When we cannot earn the approval of others, we feel shame. When we can't feel, earn the approval of God, we feel guilt. And all of this begins right in Genesis chapter 3 with this process, seeing, desiring, and taking, breaking God's command, okay? And we're not going to talk about the sin and the guilt all that much, but I, I hope if we look at this process a little bit, maybe we can avoid the guilt uh, and the shame. So that's Genesis chapter 3. I want to look at two more passages real quick. The next one is Joshua chapter 7. And uh, in Joshua chapter 7, the story is um, right after the battle of Jericho. Some of you are familiar with that story. People, God's people are coming out of the wilderness into the promised land, and he tells them, you're going to march around this city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and then blow your trumpets, and all the walls are going to fall down which is a really weird story, um, but that's the story. And that's where we are in, Genesis, uh, or in uh, Joshua chapter 7. They've, just, they've, uh, they've marched around the city. God's going to deliver this city into their hands without any warfare. You don't have to lift a sword. You don't have to lift a shield. Just blow the trumpets, the walls come down, and in you go. But like in the garden, there was one command. The only thing I'm going to ask you to do is don't take any of the valuables that you find. You go in, you win the victory, but you don't keep anything for yourself. You just leave it. It belongs to the Lord, right? So what happens is a man named Achan, who is involved in this battle in Jericho, just can't help himself. And he ends up taking some of the things uh, back to his tent. So in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 20, Joshua confronts him, and Achan confesses. He said, Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and did, uh, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, that's a garment of some sort, from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He got very specific there at the end for reasons I don't understand. Um, but look at the pattern again. We have the same thing. He goes into the city. He sees these things that are beautiful. What does he say he did next? Then he coveted them. And after he coveted them, he took them. So we see the same pattern again. He saw them, he desired them, and he took them. Um, and in this way, he broke the one command, just like Adam and Eve did. There was one prohibition. Don't take anything that you find there. And that one command he broke. And notice the next thing he does after that is he hides. He hides the things in his tent. And so that tendency also always will be to hide from others, to hide from God uh, after committing a sin. Okay, now 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll slow down in a minute. Right now we're, last one. 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is a story of David and Bathsheba. David is a king of Israel. He's the best king Israel gets. And if you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, uh, after hearing this story, you're gonna think, wow, this is the best king Israel gets. Um, because this is his low point. Um, David has expanded the boundaries of Israel as far as they will ever be. The people are living in peace because of his leadership. And then one day he's up on his roof and he sees a woman bathing. And we pick up in chapter 11, uh, verse 2. When evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. It's his house. 
And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Okay, here's the pattern again. He saw her on the uh, roof, from his roof, saw her bathing. He inquired about her, who is this? Started asking questions. And then the third thing is he took her. So it's the same pattern that we see in the other two places, right? See, desire, take. So all of this is to say the, main, uh, the first point that I want to share with you tonight is that sin is a process. Sin is a process. You can fall in a hole. You can maybe even fall in love, but you can't fall into sin. Sin is a process, right? Sin doesn't just happen to you. you there's always a way that it unfolds, and there's always a place to stop it. So the first thing is, uh, the, the three steps in the process, we've laid them out already, but just to reiterate, the first is temptation. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the opportunity, it's the opportunity for sin presents itself. That's what temptation is, okay? So for Eve, the temptation was there was this fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat. I don't know why she was standing so close to the tree. Maybe it was a small garden. Maybe she was just loitering around because she wanted to eat that fruit. But at the very least, when she saw it, if she had seen it and walked by, there's no harm done, right? If Achan, when he entered Jericho, had seen the things that he saw and kept on going, there's no harm done. This, the opportunity to sin has presented itself, but, there's, but nothing has happened. Nothing wrong has happened, right? If David had seen Bathsheba from his roof bathing on her roof and said, I should probably go inside where I belong, then there's no harm done. He's seen, but he hasn't acted on anything. That's temptation. It's just the opportunity for sin. Jesus was tempted, okay? So being tempted is not a sin. Uh, temptation is just the opportunity. If you don't move past temptation, then uh, you'd never get to sin. So temptation is the first step. The second step I'll call justification. You still haven't sinned yet, but you're getting really, really close with this one. This is where Eve says, I saw the fruit, but then it was desirable to me. It was a very pretty fruit. It's actually literally what that means. It's, de it's a delight to the eyes. Isn't that a nice fruit? Um, and it's desirable to make me wise. So now she's thinking about it. If I eat the fruit, it's going to make me smarter. Doesn't everybody want that? Don't I deserve to be just a little bit smarter? You start justifying the action to yourself, right? Achan probably does the same thing. He's gone into battle. They've defeated the enemy. He rushes in and does this thing. Man, we've just had this great victory. It's just a little bit of stuff. It's nice stuff. It's expensive stuff. Somebody's just going to pawn it or sell it. I don't know what's going to happen to it. I might as well just take it back to my tent, and you've justified the action to yourself, right? This is, the, this is where compromise creeps in. Even before you commit the sin, this is where you're preparing yourself to do it, right? You're preparing yourself to take the next step, which is disobedience. So temptation, then justification, and then the third step is sin. I couldn't think of a word that ended with Asian, but if I do, action, that's close. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Amir. So temptation, justification, and sin. Sin is a process. What I'm trying to tell you is that you can stop the process after, the, after temptation. You can stop the process after justification, but you can't stop it after sin. Then you're just in it, right? So if you can begin to catch yourself in this process, you can begin to, to short-circuit the process of sin. Okay, 
So that's number one, sin is a process. Number two, the time to beat sin is immediately, okay? What do I mean by this? You can linger around the temptation. You can begin to justify things to yourself, uh, but it's much harder to stop the process in stage two than it is to stop the process in stage one, okay? Once you start justifying something to yourself, it's easy. And this can be any kind of sin. This could be... um, Somebody pay you're, you're working a job someplace, and you know they don't pay you enough because you've got you're going places. And they don't recognize your talent, and uh, all you want is an extra Coke out of the Coke machine, and it's what seventy five cents, and who cares? And I deserve it because I, you know, it's it's any little thing that you can kind of convince yourself is owed to you, right? Or maybe it's something more sinister, but you think, you know, I can dabble in this thing over here because everything else is in order and I just deserve a little bit of a break, right? I'm very careful in this part of my life. I'm very careful in this part of my life and I'm tired and I just, I deserve a little outlet, right? So it's anywhere where you begin to justify to yourself, then you're real close um, to, to the end, right? It's very hard to stop yourself in that stage of the process. My son, uh, who is now four, is uh, the child I deserve. My mom reminds me of that all the time. He never stops asking questions, and he's always got a smart aleck come back, and I don't remember teaching him all those words, but now he uses them against me. And um, not long ago, we were eating lunch, and he had, uh, it, was a, it was a box lunch. I don't remember where it was from, you know, sandwich place or something, but there was a cookie in the box, and he had already had sweets, and he asked if he could have the cookie. I said, no, you can't have the cookie. He said, okay, I'll just hold the cookie. I said, well, you can hold the cookie, but you can't eat the cookie. And he said, no, I'm just going to hold it. Okay? And a minute later, I heard him opening the package, and I said, Jamie, you can't eat that cookie. I know. I'm just going to sniff it. Okay. Okay, just sniff the cookie. He doesn't say his S's. So he says, I'm I'm just going to sniff the cookie, which is really cute. I'm not going to eat it. I'm just going to sniff it. Okay. And then at some point, he had it open even further. And I said, buddy, you can't eat it. I know I'm just going to lick it. Well, <laughs> no, buddy, you can't eat it. You cannot lick the cookie. Now, he has not eaten the cookie, but how many of you know how this story ends, right? <laughs> Somebody's about to take a big old bite of that cookie. If he had just said, yes, sir, and put the cookie down, we wouldn't have gotten any further, right? But we just kind of walk up to the line and walk up to the line because well, there's no harm done, we think, until we've done the thing. But every little step that we take gets us closer to the thing, and it's just harder to turn back. Once you open that package and smell that cookie, you know, it's way harder than just putting that package down, right? And I know we're talking about cookies, and none of us are worried about cookies, but you know what I'm trying to say here, right? So that's those little steps towards the line of disobedience, um, we have to stop the process before we justify it to ourselves. If we don't, it's a whole lot harder. So when I say that the best time to beat sin is immediately, what I mean is you might need to physically remove yourself from a situation. Joseph did this in the story uh, in Genesis. Uh, Joseph was a slave in a wealthy man's house. This man's, uh, his name was Potiphar. His wife started coming on to Joseph because Joseph was handsome, and she tried to get him into bed, and at one point she grabbed his cloak, a robe, and tried to pull him into bed, and he just slithered out and ran away which is the right thing to do, right? You don't stand there. You don't try to talk it out. You don't try. You just get out of there. And it's still a really hilarious image to me of him wriggling out of his clothes and taking off. I don't recommend fleeing places naked, but the point I'm trying to make is that Joseph didn't wait around, right? 
He didn't wait one more step, one more step, one more step. He just said, I got to get out of here. And he just physically ran out of the room, okay? So sometimes when we're getting close, when we're approaching that place, you have to imagine, you have to just take yourself out of the situation. Don't count on your self-control because we don't have any, okay? The best time to uh, have self-control is before something happens. So I have absolutely no self-control with chips. My wife will not buy chips because when she buys a bag of chips, I just open them and stand in the pantry and eat them all, <laughs> just, just like that. So the way we exercise self-control with chips is we don't buy chips, okay? If we buy them, I can't pace myself, and I know that, so we don't buy them. You get what I'm saying? So the self-control comes by like not putting yourself in that situation, okay? The self-control comes before the moment you have to decide one way or the other. It comes in preparing so that you aren't faced with an impossible decision. Joseph didn't have the choice because he was a slave in the house, but he had a choice when the moment came and he fled. So if you have to physically remove yourself, do it. So this is experience talking to you. The sooner you stop the progress, the easier it is to stop in this process. I hope that this is liberating and not condemning, right? That you know that you've got these moments, these moments of decision. Sin is never one decision. Sin is always several decisions. And if you can stop before the final decision, there's time to turn it around. Now, the next thing um, I want to mention is that you need to know yourself in order to protect yourself. Sometimes you will be tempted. Sometimes temptation catches you totally off guard. Eve, I don't know what her situation was. Again, I don't know why she was standing around the tree. Uh, Achan, though, was doing exactly what God had asked him to do, right? He said, go into Jericho, defeat this city. He went into Jericho, defeated the city. He was on a spiritual high, if we can put it that way. And in that moment of spiritual high, in the middle of what God had asked him to do, he experienced temptation, right? Which is a terrifying thought. It happens all the time. I can look to moments in my life where I felt the most connection with God, the most sort of spiritual union with God and with other people, and can almost to a moment tell you that every time I felt that, I experienced some sort of temptation to something. To, because the devil hates that, that experience. He hates that moment. So Achan is in this moment. He's doing exactly what God wanted. He's experiencing the blessing of God, experienced the presence of God, and he is tempted. Now David, on the other hand, was tempted because he was an idiot and he was not where he was supposed to be. So 2 Samuel chapter 2 is where we started. 2 Samuel chapter, I'm sorry, uh, verse 2 is where we started. Uh, chapter 11 verse 1 says, It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to war that David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. So where was David supposed to be? He's supposed to be at war, because that's what kings do. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's like, oh, it's wartime, everybody. Let's get it together. Um, but he was supposed to be out in war because he's the king. Kings lead their people in battle. Instead, he outsourced it to a general and said, you go, I'm going to stay here. And then in verse uh, 2, where we pick up reading, it says that he got out of bed. He didn't get out of bed in the morning. He got out of bed in the evening. So he's laying in bed. He's bored because somebody else is fighting his battles, and he's just loitering around on the roof, and he's looking down. I mean, he's doing everything wrong, right? He's put himself in a compromising situation, and because he's in a compromising situation, the temptation is just that much easier to, to succumb to. You with me? So sometimes you'll face temptation through no fault of your own. 
But a lot of other times we experience temptation because we put ourselves in a situation where we're going to run into temptation. And we know it. We know it before we go. And we do it anyway. Right? So the, uh, the key here is you have to know yourself. It's going to be different for different people. If you struggle with sexual temptation, then do not put yourself in a situation where temptation is going to present itself. If that means that all you can watch is, you know, Disney for preschoolers for six months, then that's what you do, right? You just take a moment and step back and do not present yourself with the, the temptation. Does that make sense? If you're the kind of person who you know if you go to a party, you're going to drink yourself stupid and pass out somewhere, then don't go to the party. That just don't put yourself in that situation because you know that when you get there, this is the decision you're going to make. If you have a hard time with gossip, then don't spend time with the people that you gossip with. And you know who they are. And you know when you get there that you're going to start talking about this person. If you're like me and you stop being a Christian when you get in the car, then you have to be careful about how you drive. <laughs> Ask Josh Rawls. He will love to tell you this story. I met Josh in a roundabout recently and didn't know it was him. And, uh, and I... I had words with him, and uh, I'm glad it was him in retrospect because I was not a very good person. The point is, I know that that's when I get angry. If you're a person who deals, if you're a person who deals with vanity or pride, avoid the spotlight. Find a place to serve where no one can see you for a while, right? So don't put yourself in a situation where you know it's impossible for you to resist temptation. Just don't do it. Don't count on your self-control. Just control what you can control. And what you can control is the decisions that come before the temptation, right? You with me? Okay. Uh, this is going to be different for everybody. What that means is that all of us have to not judge someone else. If you're the, I was the kind of person in high school, I was never tempted to, um, I was never tempted to drink with my buddies in high school. I don't know why. Um, it just never looked like fun to me. So, and my friends were idiots, and that's probably why. So um, I was never tempted. I could go to the parties and hang out and be the one person there, you know, to call the fire department when things went south, and it just was not a problem for me. Um, and so, but it would be easy then to judge and to assume that I'm putting myself in a compromising situation, but I wasn't. I was not in a compromising situation. There are other situations uh, at about that age that were much tamer than some sort of, you know, wild kegger on the weekend that I just should not have been involved in because I couldn't handle it. And so what, what was a tripping point for you may not be a tripping point for somebody else. We have to give each other the grace to know what's going on. But don't fool yourself, right? You know where your temptations are. And don't let your friends make bad decisions. I mean, don't go around judging everybody, but the people that are close to you say, look, man, every time you go to this place, you do this thing. Stop going to that place. That's what your friends are for. And you're going to be really mad at the person who tells you that the first time, but they're your friends. They're the ones who care about you, okay? So don't fool yourself. Know what you're getting yourself into before you get there and, um, and avoid, control the things you can control. The next thing I want to mention is when you start doing all of this, you should expect a fight. Um, when you start resisting temptation for real, you're going to start feeling like a really bad person because you're going to realize how much you want to do certain things that you've never really resisted before. Um, I keep coming back to food. I really don't have a problem with food, but I do kind of kind of have a problem with food, I guess. Um, I was I tried to I tried to uh, fast in high school for, in college for the first time, and I made it, you know, like seven hours or so. And then my roommate ordered pizza, and it was pepperoni pizza. That's just not even fair. Um, it was you know glistening pepperoni pizza. 
And I was sitting there feeling all spiritual until he walked in with this pizza. And then I thought, I would kill a man for a slice of that pizza. I really would. Like, I don't even, who cares about spiritual growth at this moment? I just want that pizza and I hope it's stuffed crust and I want it now. Um, But before you try to give something up, you don't realize how much of a hold it has on you, right? I like to think now I could pass a piece of pizza, right? I like to think that I have matured to that point. Probably, if it's a good pizza, probably not. But I have standards now. You know, I'm an adult. I've moved on. The, um, but you don't know how hard it is to resist something until you try to resist it. C.S. Lewis was one of my favorite uh, authors when I was young. I'm going to read this quote. It's a little long, but it's so good. He said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Isn't that incredible? We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. Okay? So here's what I'm trying to say. If you start resisting temptation that you're not currently resisting, you're going to feel like a really bad person, but you won't feel guilty. Okay? You won't feel guilty. If you're resisting temptation, you're going to go, I am a petty person and I did not realize it. Um, I experienced this when I got married. I thought I was a pretty good roommate, you know? I was nice to the guys that lived in my clean, tidy, pay my bills, all that kind of thing. Then I got married and realized I am a selfish jerk. I had no idea, but now that she wants things and she wants to eat at a certain time and she wants this, and I thought, I don't want that stuff. And nobody's ever made me do this before. And so it's like suddenly I, real, I never, never realized how selfish I was until I was in that situation, in that relationship, right? And so the new situation sort of brought up, and I felt like a really bad person. I thought, I'm selfish, I didn't even know it, and I'm a brat, and, I didn't, and I'm moody, and I pout when I don't get what I want, and look at this, I, what's going on here? And this is what's going to happen when you start resisting temptation, right? You're going to realize, I want this thing more than I thought I did, and it feels really weird. Um, then I got my act together a little bit after I got married, and then we had kids, and then now I'm selfish again, because I just want five minutes to myself, you know, and, um, and they want 40 minutes together, and that's a bad combination. Um, but what I'm trying to say is every new situation sort of brings up things in you that you didn't know were there. And one of the things that does that is resisting temptation. When you fight against sin, you will feel how strong it is in you for the very first time. And that will be frightening. Um, but it is a sign that God is at work in you. We like things to be easy. Um, some of you will say, I would pray more, but I'm not good at it. And I'd read the Bible more, but I'm not good at it. Uh, the Christian tradition calls those things disciplines because nobody's good at them. Um, it doesn't come naturally for anyone. And so the only way we learn how to do them is by getting in the fight. And when you get in the fight, it's rough for a little while, uh, but eventually you begin to, to experience the power of Christ working in your life in a new way. You realize that you're not the one now resisting them to this temptation, but you're giving Christ a chance to help you resist it, right? When you give in in five minutes, he doesn't really have time to help you out. When you start to resist it, he can come to your aid and he can help you defeat it. So the last thing that I want to mention here tonight is in all of this, you have to trust in Jesus. Nothing will make you more, uh, nothing will make you as grace, grateful for grace as 
resisting temptation. Um, when you start trying to short circuit this pattern of sin and you realize how hard it is for you, it becomes a whole lot harder to judge other people because you know what the battle is like. It's really easy to judge other people when you feel bad about yourself because you keep giving in to sin. And then you think, well, that person's no better than I am because they do it too. Well, that's not a very high position, right? When you, when you begin to experience, resist temptation, you experience God's grace in a new way, and it's a lot easier to extend that grace to other people because you know where they're coming from and you know that there's a way out, okay? You can't fight the battle on your own against sin. God knows that. That's why he gave us Jesus. He also gave us a community because there are times when what you need more than anything is to call a friend that you can trust and say, listen, man, if you're not here in five minutes, I'm going to do something stupid. I need you to come right now. And you need friends like that in your life. You need to be that kind of friend who can call somebody up and say, I don't feel good leaving you alone right now. Let's have another cup of coffee, right? Um, because God didn't intend for us to fight this battle alone. That's why it's such a shame that our instinct with sin and sinfulness is to hide from each other. Because when we hide from each other, we can't help each other. Um, and so when we're, uh, when we're making this journey um, and trying to stop the process of sin before it becomes mature, I want to invite you to do two things. The first of all is to invite Christ into the fight. And the second thing is to invite a friend into the fight. Okay? Somebody that you can rely on, somebody you can tell anything to, somebody you can confess your deepest, darkest secrets to, and you know that they're going to say, man, that sucks, but I love you, right? And they're not going anywhere. If you don't have that, um, you know, there are people in this room who would be that for you. I, I, I absolutely believe that. And so what I want us to do, we have a few more minutes together. I want to invite us all to a moment of prayer, and I want us to ask for one of these things either the power of Jesus in our life or the power of friendship. If you're already walking with Jesus and that's pretty good, but you're, you're alone in the fight, then ask him to send you a helper. Um, if, you're, if you're new, if this is your first time and you thought this is my first time and we're talking about sin, what a drag. Well, I understand that. Um, but let me tell you, if this is your first time, I've got to think you know what I'm talking about. All of us have got to know this from experience. And the only hope you have of beating it is surrendering the fight to Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. Um, so do this for me. If you would bow your heads with me and close your eyes, I'm gonna just lead us in a moment uh, of prayer and then uh, Pastor Amir is gonna join us back up here um, to continue that time of response. But I just wanna give you a few minutes to let God speak.